We even tell people to do daily huddles for the first 30 to 60 days. We're talking to your VA for 10, 15, 20 minutes, just talking about what they got going on, if they have any questions, and that's it. Just a way to put a face to a name, a face to a voice, and get to know them a little bit better. Ask them how their weekend was. It, it sounds like such elementary stuff, but it, it plays a big role long term. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show, where we interview top-notch entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders in a variety of subjects, and a whole lot more. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Brady Morgan. Brady tells us the story of creating his virtual assistant staffing agency and a whole lot more. He tells us about the failed businesses that led him to create this business. He talks about how hosting a podcast equipped him to have the skills, knowledge, and network to create this business. We discuss the do's and don'ts of virtual assistants, when to hire one, when you shouldn't, what countries to hire from, what rates to pay, how-tos, etc. We discuss the impact of starting a family very young has had on his whole business journey and a whole lot more. I'm excited for you to listen to this conversation. I say that every single time, but I mean it. And I'm going to switch over to the episode now. Enjoy. Brady, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Very excited to be chatting today. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Definitely. Uh, A lot of people watching this, listening, they're probably thinking, you know, you're a young guy, you're 24, 25 by my estimation. Walk us through from kind of like graduating high school, what you did in college, like how you're the CEO of a virtual assistant staffing agency. That's, you know, not just an idea, right? It's like functional. There's hundreds of these in the database. Like what's, what's the gap between the position you're currently in and what you're doing and kind of like the, how you got there semi abbreviated. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so go back to high school, which seems like forever ago. I was a soccer player. I played college soccer and just always been pretty competitive. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, though. I went and played, and then I decided to step away and focus on school just because, you know, I didn't think I was going to be playing pro anytime soon. But then I got a degree in finance from a school in East Tennessee. And while I was there, I knew I wanted to do my own thing. Uh, My first entrepreneurial journey was actually in college. Used to be in fitness. Obviously, I don't really look like I'm was ever into fitness, but I used to be into fitness and I started my own fitness clothing brand because that was the cool thing to do. Didn't know what I was doing, actually lost money on it, but I learned how to talk to people, how to get customers, etc. But stopped doing that, just focused on school, graduated, worked in investment banking at a UBS, Global Investment Bank, worked as an analyst at a healthcare company, uh, Vanderbilt, pretty pretty big here in Nashville. But then at the height of the pandemic, right when it started, I actually got fired out of fear. So everyone's getting fired in the corporate world because no one knew what was going on or what was going to come. So I got fired. And before I got fired, I had already started a podcast. Pretty successful. Didn't really mean for it to be successful, but got to interview like the first CEO of Netflix, Brad Lee, Mark Brazil, some pretty cool folks. And got top 35 for entrepreneurship in America. Uh, but I wasn't making money from it, but I knew, Hey, I got to make money somehow. I'm married. I don't have a job now. So might as well just try to start my own business. I'm, I'm not going to get a job anytime soon because nobody's hiring. Started pulling unemployment, honestly, cause it was like a thousand bucks a week, which was great at the time. Cause I was unemployed. Well, I started a fractional CFO business cause I understood finance from that level, working with smaller level entrepreneurs. Wasn't going great, but I got introduced to virtual assistants and outsourcing. And you always hear about outsourcing. I had worked with big companies when I worked in investment banking, but I didn't really understand it. It was just what you did. You just worked with people overseas. But then we saw this gap of, okay, we're working with virtual assistants. It was very difficult for us to get a virtual assistant that was actually good. So there's this big gap that we see companies needing because people are working remote. People are becoming more familiar with it, more comfortable with it. So me and my business partner jumped ship off the fractional CFO business and dove all into VASA, virtual assistant staffing agency. And, you know, coming back to the podcast, I think a big thing of our success and something that I believe in is networking, uh, especially at our age. I imagine you guys are young as well. It's, it's kind of intimidating to try to network with people who are older than you because um, sometimes they're douchebags and sometimes you just feel like I'm nothing while they even listen to me. So, but this podcast where I got to network with a lot of high level individuals through a podcast, I reached back out to them when we started the virtual assistant staffing agency. And that provided a really big jump off the start. Um, and I'm a big believer with business. You, you, you don't know what you don't know. So the best thing is to just do it. And you'll learn along the way. You're going to fail. You're going to do shit the wrong way. But you just got to learn. So that's something that we did was just learn, 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 do everything we could. And now we've got hundreds of clients uh, from all over the U.S. and Canada. And it's, it's been great. 
that one of the assumptions that Kyle and I started this podcast off of, right, was we started it kind of after shutting the doors on like a previous project we'd started together that wasn't getting traction. Then kind of on the, the assumption that through the podcast, we'll meet people that'll be really helpful. We'll learn a lot. And then we'll have potentially both an audience and a network that if and when we do have some great idea, we'd have the ability to launch it much more quickly. What were some of the ways having a network from your podcast made starting your business like truly easier and faster and avoiding mistakes? Like what are like a tangible example of a piece of advice you received or yeah. you know, a phone call someone made on your behalf that just opened some doors a lot faster than they would have otherwise? Yeah. So, so what people have to understand with running a podcast is running a podcast is a lot of work. I understand, but it's the best way to get almost free coaching calls from people. Cause we have to understand is when you're getting people on your podcast, you're kind of stroking their ego to a degree. You're letting them talk about themselves just like I'm doing and talking about their businesses for 30, 45 minutes. And now I love you because you let me just talk about myself. So now you have the ability to ask me for advice. We have this connection now that we didn't have before. And it's way different than if you were to just randomly ask me on Instagram a question about business. We have a connection now. We have a relationship. So something that was huge for us, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the name Brendan Kane. He promotes his books all over the internet, 1 million followers in Hookpoint. And he's done digital campaigns for Taylor Swift, Rihanna, some really big brands. And he was actually one of the first people to work with us. Uh, reached out to him. I mean, not expecting anything because he was a big name, worked with big, big people. And he wanted to work with us not only on a partnership where he's referring us to his clients, but also grabbing uh, some resources from us as well. So that was huge because when you have a name like that, it provides a sense of credibility to where people say, oh, if, if Brendan Kane and Hookpoint are working with you, then why, why would I not? Uh, another person that's become a mentor of mine, his name is Joey Carson. So he's the CEO of Elevator Studio out in LA. Uh, Dan Fleischman founded that company. They've worked with Jake Paul, Postmates, Dane Bilzerian, some really big names. But he's a veteran in the in the production space. He's the CEO of a TV production company. They've done big things. He knows a lot of big people. But he's kind of he's one of those guys where I can call him or text him whenever I have a question, just about big business in general. And when I say big business, not to like say, oh yeah, I'm big. It's more like, hey, I've never been in a scenario like this before. You have, I don't even know which route to go. And the most recent one is we're trying to raise money and I've never created a pitch deck. I don't know how to pitch because I've never done it before. I'm 25 years old. So I reached out to him and he literally sent him my pitch deck last night and he sent me feedback immediately. Why? Because we have a relationship now and something to where I'm providing value to him. He's providing value to me. Whereas let's say if I just went straight to him on Instagram and said, Hey, Joey, love everything you're doing. Can you review my pitch deck? He'd say, no, I don't have time for that. So it's amazing what podcasts can do as far as opening doors, because you're not just interviewing people to grow your podcast. You're building relationships that will build to fruition over time. Yeah. I like uh, to call it a forced multiplier on networking. So it's just like any um, effort that you would put toward networking is just multiplied when you're doing it via a podcast because mm -hmm. of what you're talking about. You know, you're stroking their ego and you're taking that relationship from zero to, to one, and then you can build whatever you want from there. Um, but I have a question around the, so you said like, you know, it's a problem trying to find good VAs. Well, how do you solve that problem with your business and, you know, leaving the, um, the fractional CFO business, which I, I'm interested to, to know what that is. Cause I've never heard of that, but, yeah. um, you know, you recognize this problem. What are you guys doing? What did you do to solve that problem for, for your customers? So I'll start, I'll start with the fractional CFO. Cause that's an easier answer to go. Fractional just means, uh, digital part-time, uh, the gig economy to where I am your outsourced CFO pay me X number of dollars per month. I'll handle accounting, finance, payroll, et cetera. And then you don't have to worry about that at all. Um, people use fractional with like COO or fractional CEO, fractional human resource officer, whatever the case might be. Fractional is just a, it's a popular word now. It's a buzzword now. Um, but how do we solve that? So something that we saw is that most of these agencies, they will actually have VAs on their staff that they contract to other people. So they're very limited to the skill that they can provide for clients. Not only that, but if you guys come to me and say, hey, I need a video editor, I might be thinking, great, I have a video editor on my staff. I'm just gonna place this video editor with you guys. But what they're missing the mark on 
is something that we abide by when we place. The most important thing when having somebody on your team is a culture fit. I don't care what anybody says. You can have someone who is the best video editor in the world communicate super effectively, but if they suck to work with, it's not going to last that long because they're not a culture fit. And that is something that a lot of these agencies miss the mark on is they're placing solely based off skill. Don't get me wrong, skill is important, but you have to have a combination of culture fit, English proficiency, because we have to remember we're placing from the Philippines, and skill in that order though. Because then in my opinion, hey, let's say you have someone who's a great culture fit and they're really, really good at video editing, but you can't even communicate with them because the English proficiency isn't there. It's not going to be pretty, it's not going to be efficient or effective at all. So we saw that gap to where people were just, were placing just the place. They weren't treating each client based off their unique situation. So the way that we do it is we don't have VAs on our, we have the, our own VAs that are actually on our team that work for us, but we don't have VAs on our staff that we place for clients. Each individual deal is we are sourcing our pool. We have a pool of about 3000 vetted candidates. We have a Facebook group that my VAs have grown themselves where we pull candidates from about 16, 17,000 people. And it's just grown over time from consistency. But every single time somebody comes in, we have a job description form. We call it the VA order form that somebody fills out and we treat, treat each job differently where we are looking for a combination of culture fit, English proficiency and skill that's going to match this job. And that was the problem that we saw is even if someone was skilled, it just wasn't a fit. It didn't work out and you, and you couldn't really put your finger on it. Why is this not working out? This person's really good, but I, I can't communicate with them. I don't understand how, why they're not working hard. I don't understand why they don't, they don't want to contribute, et cetera. And it comes down to the involvement of the, the staffing agency, which is the role that we are playing now as being as involved as possible. Um, and that was what was making it hard for people because virtual, virtual assistants are not a new topic. You know, Tim Ferriss talked about virtual assistants in the four hour work week. And that book came out in like 2007, 2008. And he talked about using them, but it was kind of a scary thing, right? You're like, I don't feel comfortable working with someone in India or Pakistan or the Philippines because I don't know them. And that's just because the technology didn't really exist yet to make it easy and comfortable and reliable to do it. And now that it exists and companies are jumping the gun to provide this resource, thinking about their bottom line at the end of the day. And don't get me wrong, as a business owner, the bottom line is important, but you have to provide value more than anything because that bottom line will increase as a result. So that's what we're doing now is just treating each individual job differently, really giving our clients that white glove service of not just placing, but onboarding, training, et cetera, um, to make it easier for them to find the right talent to grow with their organization over time. So I'm you know, fairly convinced that's a robust solution to, to the problem. What are some of the bottlenecks to you and your team for, for growing this business, right? Because, I mean, you need a lot of white glove means hard to automate on your end, right? Me sending you a description of what I need done, you know, you can't just audit, like algorithmically assign what that means. If it's white glove, that's kind of in the name. What are some like, like what's preventing you from becoming humongous really quickly? Absolutely. If you so, have solved a problem that effectively work, like is a problem for any business ever. Yeah, so you're exactly right. You know, you have that white glove service and you think, hmm, how, how can I actually go into this 3,000 person database and find who I'm looking for? I, I don't know. And that's a problem that's probably always going to exist because as that candidate pool grows, you're going to have to put in parameters to really, really, uh, to really finding the right person. And in my opinion, not to break off on a tangent, all these platforms that implement AI into their HR platforms is a very wrong way to go because AI is only going to vet based off what you tell it to vet. And what we see, we've used a platform called interviewer.ai that uses AI and it, it, it suck. And it's a great platform, but it sucks because you don't know if it's grading people on a bad basis that are actually good and vice versa. But how, how do you solve this problem? So in our application and vetting process, I'm a big automation. Though. I love implementing automations, making my my life easier, my team's life's easier. And through our vetting process in the application, we ask a lot of questions. Uh, it's probably annoying. I think we've all been through job applications before to where you don't want to finish it because it's taking forever. So we're constantly researching on, you know, how do we get more people to finish, et cetera. But we have an English proficiency test in there. Now, that's only going to go so far, but we still grade on a written and audible basis. Probably stuff we learned in middle school and high school, but it's important that we grade them on that level. Now, to remember on the English proficiency side, though, the Philippines is the third largest English-speaking country in the world. 95% of the population speaks English. 
and they have an English proficiency index that they take every year on a global scale. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the Philippines were just number 17 in the world in English proficiency, number two in Asia, which is massive. We still have to grade individually. Now, once that grade comes through, we utilize a platform called Typeform. It's just a, like Google Forms, but just a different version of it. We have an automation through Zapier that pushes that grade to Monday, our project management software, where we store all, where we have our database of candidates. Now, once they submit that application, we actually send an email per position to that candidate. Each email is different, but it asks eight to 10 questions specific to those positions to basically get those basic things out of the way. But there's a few other reasons we do that. One, written and audible English are very different from spoken English. So just because you can read it and write it, I don't know if y'all took Spanish or French or Latin, reading and writing is not as hard as, uh, or is, yeah, it's not as hard as speaking it. When you speak it, it's, it's a lot different. So we have to get their proficiency on that perspective. And my team evaluates those. Now, the other thing is, are they actually going to submit this interview to us? They have to take the video themselves of themselves answering these questions. If they don't, shows me they don't really want the job and it weeds people out. Now you asked about the bottleneck, where is the bottleneck? Because as our popularity grows, we're getting more and more candidates who are finishing the interview. And remember, my team evaluates those. So you think about the bottleneck of, if your team is hand evaluating those, you know, it's, it's subjective. It's whatever they thought of the interview. You know, there's no AI platform that has these guidelines and there's problems with AI, but in this case, could there be some positives for it? I don't know. So that's where a bottleneck's gonna come in, but in our opinion, it's just as we grow, we know this is the area where we have to place people. It's in the sourcing. You have to place people in the sourcing space. And there's always gonna be bottlenecks in any area of your business, but when it becomes a problem is when you don't know how to solve it. So we know how to solve this bottleneck if it gets any worse. And right now we're good, we're good, but hey, it's gonna happen again to where we have to solve it. We know what to do because it worked the first time we solved it. Um, but once this interview is done and my team evaluates it, again, that score is sent to Monday where we have our database and then we have this overall grade. So the reliability behind placing is my team's experience of sourcing with past clients, uh, sourcing candidates, et cetera. They utilize that in the grading system. And then when a client comes through and says, hey, here's my specific need, we have our grading system to vet who is the best in our opinion. And then we source from there of who's the best culture fit. Uh, because again, hey, we can narrow down using skill to a degree just based off this grade. Important to do that because it saves us time. But now we can be more white glove and instead of sourcing 500 candidates and trying to figure out the best culture fit, we have about 20 to 25. And now it's much, much easier. We can go much faster. But again, back to the bottleneck. You're always going to have bottlenecks. You just have to know how to solve it. Absolutely. Uh, and sounds like you're not kidding when you say you're a very process oriented person, you kind of light up describing <laughs> all the steps and systems you've built to keep these processes in order. But I want to ask a question about affordability because, you know, Kyle and I obviously, and any other person kind of at an early stage of their business, uh, or their project, whatever, you might not have any money coming in and you want to be able to afford to bring someone on, uh, you know, I'm sure there's like a spectrum of options in terms of full-time, part-time, project-based, et cetera, then also an additional potential fee structure from working with an agency like you that's going to you know, save us money in the long term for sure by teaching us how to do this better than right if we try to do it on ourselves. So what does that look like? Like, What are various kind of entry points for small businesses that don't have a huge budget but could clearly are like their bottlenecks, right, are the fact that they don't have a VA. They are not outsourcing tasks. It's kind of mm -hmm. one of those you have to take two steps backwards to take three steps forward. Uh, but can you like address that topic area quickly? Absolutely. So uh, that's the main purpose of using VAs, right, is affordability. And for people who are just starting out, uh, most people starting out do have jobs, you know, to nine to fives where they are making an income and they can fund this business venture to a degree. But the way that this works and very, very quickly, and the reason that we're different from other agencies is you have my Outdesk, you have virtual, you have, uh, I think it's called mom, et cetera, or something like that, where they are just giving you a set price per month. This is what you have to pay every single month, $2,000 and you get 20 hours a week or 10 hours a week, whatever the case might be. You equate that hourly and they're, they're obviously charging a big markup hourly. Now, when it comes to us, we typically charge an upfront fee, but we understand, hey, we've been in this position before. We have 
started businesses where you don't have any revenue coming in. You don't necessarily want to use your personal funds to fund it. So how do we get around that? Well, one, with the VA, the VAs dictate their own hourly rate. And we allow our, our client to say, hey, this is my budget. I can only pay $4 hourly or 5 or 6 or 7 or 8 whatever the case might be. We match them with the corresponding VA that has that budget and that fits that skill set, culture fit, et cetera. But they get to dictate their own hours. So if someone's saying, hey, you know, I only want to pay $4 an hour. I only want to pay for five hours a week, 20 bucks. You have the flexibility to do that. Who am I to tell you that you can't do that? Now, the catch, there's always a catch, is we do charge an upfront fee of $1,500. Now, we'll work with people if we have to, break it up into payments if we have to. Sometimes we'll even break it up where they are, we are paying the VA and we just basically tie this upfront fee into the hourly rate over a set period of time, whatever is going to work with the budget. Because again, we've been there and every single person is different. Um, but that is how we kind of get around that is giving our client the flexibility to pay how they want, pay as much as they want, and still get the help they need to continue to push forward. Brady, uh, so my question is about like the um, VA and their relationship with the company that they're being hired to. Like how does, how should the company include that person like they are a part of the company in the U.S.? And how do you avoid sort of, and, and this not, might not be the, the right way to say it, but like a, a classist system where like all the work that nobody wants to do goes to the VAs. Like how do you make them an employee just like somebody who's sitting right across from you? Yeah, so it, it comes down to communication. Uh, that's a problem that we've seen with other people who have worked with VAs in the past is you view them as strictly a virtual assistant. Like that's all they are. And of course, that's the name. But you view them to that degree to where you don't talk to them, you hand off work to them, grunt work is what people will call it, that you just don't want to do. And the barrier and I guess the, the thought we're trying to break is that they don't have the skill to actually become a team member. They don't have the skill to actually do high-level, difficult tasks. And what we've seen is the better you vet – and the more time and effort you put into it, you can find very skilled people, extremely skilled people. Just because they're a lower hourly rate does not mean that they are less skilled. The way I think about it is this. We have a video editor who's edited all the videos on our website. Very, very skilled, very quick. He knows my style. I know his style and it works. He's $7 an hour. So if someone comes to me and says, oh, that video editor is only $7 an hour. There's no way he's skilled at what he does. I'm like, well, you see this fast food worker that's making $15 an hour in Nashville. So you're saying that person is more skilled than a $7 an hour video editor because they're being paid more. Does that make sense? No, that doesn't make any sense at all. The fact of the matter is their economy is way different. So, but when you pour yourself into them and you put the time, energy, and effort to really understand their skill set and trust them, that is huge. Trust them to do a good job. Give them the documentation and SOP they need to perform the task or the project, et cetera, and let them run with it. So it's communicating one, making sure that you're, you're making them feel like they're a part of the team. It's not hard. I put myself in the, the VA shoes and say, okay, how would I want to be treated if I was an employee? Would I never want to be talked to? Would I uh, never want to know the direction of what my role is going? No, I, I, I want to be part of something long-term. Okay, great. Switch roles and do that. Make them feel like you're a part of their team. Make them feel like they're growing, part of your family, et cetera. We even tell people to do daily huddles for the first 30 to 60 days. We're talking to your VA for 10, 15, 20 minutes, just talking about what they got going on, if they have any questions, and that's it. Just a way to put a face to a name, a face to a voice, and get to know them a little bit better. Ask them how their weekend was. It, it sounds like such elementary stuff, but it, it plays a big role long term. And then trust. Give them what they need training wise, and then let them run with it. If they make a mistake, it happens. We're all humans, but it's your job as a leader to lead them in that right direction and make them feel like they're a big part of the team. Yeah. I wanted you to touch uh, on that economy piece too, because, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nick Huber on, um, or maybe it wasn't Nick Huber, maybe somebody else on Twitter. They got a lot of heat for talking about their Filipino assistants and how they pay them $6 an hour. Um, and, you know, to me, it's like, well, this is a, this is a globe. Like we've got a lot of places, there's a lot of space and a lot of people have different circumstances and $4 a lot is a lot to some people. 
Um, and so just like, how would you respond to that sort of sentiment or negative sentiment toward VA and people expecting them to, you know, pay them $20 an hour? Cause that's what they would pay for uh, an American with the same skills. Yeah, for sure. So I, I'll tell you what was, there was one time when we were on clubhouse and we were talking about this and I was getting grilled by these two, uh, women about virtual assistants and their rates and I'm not ethical and blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, it, it, it hurts to hear that, right? Because at the end of the day, like I, I don't want to be viewed as someone who doesn't have integrity or ethical, but here's the way we mitigate that risk. And here's the way that we think that we talk about it is the best story I can think about that really puts it in the layman's terms where everybody understands is there's a story of a couple that retired in the Philippines. They were there for 10 years and they only had a hundred thousand dollars total. Now I like to view it as, Hey, if you're in the United States, hundred thousand dollars might last you what one year, two years, maybe three years. So you just use it off that percentage. And the way that I say is the Filipino economy is anywhere from about 10 to 25, maybe 30% of the U.S. economy. Again, it's going to vary based off location. It's the way it is. But you have to understand is the, the minimum wage in the Philippines is a little bit over a dollar. A little bit over a dollar. So you're telling me that someone in the Philippines would rather work for a company in the Philippines and make a dollar or two dollars or a dollar fifty, whatever the case might be, then work for a company in the States and have more opportunity to make more money, doesn't make any sense. Not to mention through our company, the VAs dictate their own hourly rates. I don't tell them what to take. If you wanna say you're worth $100 an hour, just prove it and you might not get matched with the client because that's not the purpose of our company, but again, dictate your own hourly rate. Hold that you hold that authority. So when a VA comes in and says, hey, I want $6 an hour, that person that is on Twitter, whoever it is, saying I pay my VA $6 an hour, that VA might be perfectly fine. That VA might be crushing it in the Philippines. But people are so fast to just judge because they don't know. They have no idea. All they're viewing it as, how are you paying your administrative assistant $6 an hour and Chick-fil-A starting out at, at $23 an hour down the street? It's because our economy is very, very different. Inflation here is not, it's not a global inflation when you look at it like our economy. Is, it's just different. It's all different. So people just don't know. They don't understand. So the way that I tell people is just understand their economy is way, way different. Things are cheaper there relative to the U.S. dollar. And I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, I think that's certainly a, a good summary and a good way of looking at it. People have a, a very uh, not only national, but like local, you know, like if you're in L.A., and they just made the the minimum wage twenty five dollars an hour. I don't I don't know if that's true or whatever. It's just like those people they don't think outside of of where mm -hmm. they at or where their feet are at. Uh, and I totally agree with you. You know, eight. And if you think about it proportionally, if if it's one to to fifteen dollars, so like one dollars uh, minimum wage to fifteen dollars in the United States, it's almost like if you multiply by six. They're making, you know, $90 an hour, uh, in the equivalent of $90 an hour in the Philippines if you take it by, like, the hourly minimum yeah. wage multiplier. Uh, exactly. I don't know if that, that totally made that sense. That makes sense. But, that makes you know, sense. It, does, okay. it, it makes sense, but and it's, it's probably not exactly that proportionate, right, because every location is different. But people just don't think that way, you know. They, mm -hmm. they think, oh, that's, that's just cheap. If, some, if I was getting paid $6 an hour in Nashville, I'd be pissed. It's like, well, you're, they're not in Nashville. So it's way different. So uh, I want to hear uh, you know, a little bit more about your story and how you go from uh, like investment banking, you're a 25-year-old CEO. Like, what is this? You, know, you always had that entrepreneurial desire um, inside of you, even through college. What has this uh, experience been like for you going from investment banking uh, to being fired to uh, where you're at today and the podcast, I guess, in the mix there? Yeah. So I, I, I kind of always knew I didn't want to do a desk job. Uh, I mean, desk jobs are great. It pays the bills. You need people in the economy that do it. But when I started working out, working at UBS right out of college. I was like 21 or 22. Uh, I was making $45,000 a year. Uh, my rent every single month, I was living on my own with my, my one of my college roommates and I was making, I pay like 700 bucks a month. I was netting probably like 2,800 bucks a month with a quarter of that going to rent. 
Um, I was new. I was about to get engaged. So you had to buy an engagement ring. I had a car note. I, you know, all this stuff that you just buy. And then I'm working at the job and I'm sitting there for seven hours or eight hours a day doing an hour's worth of work. But I have to sit in my seat. I have to stay there because guess what? I'm, I'm part of the system now. I have to... You have, to ha you have to show the upper level management that, hey, we have people with butts and seats and we're productive because of that. I was like, this is bullshit. Like, there's more to life than this. Uh, I already hate what I do and I'm 22. Like, that's a problem. I should probably fix it or I'm going to be depressed the rest of my life and hate waking up every single day and live for the weekend. And then you go on social media and you see all these people that are traveling and it's Wednesday afternoon and they're getting hammered and... You're like, man, I want that. You know, <laughs> I, I want to be able not, – it's not even so much like I don't even really care about the money. I just care about the freedom. Like I just want the freedom to do what I want when I want. So you know, you say that. I think every – I was a entrepreneur at that point where I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do something. I never did anything because I didn't know. You know, you read a lot of books and you don't implement anything. So I'm just wasting time at that point. So then I get married and I moved to work at Vanderbilt. And this is when I started the podcast. I was like, okay, I, I need to do something, and the podcast is the lowest barrier to entry. It just kind of hit me one morning, hey, you should start a podcast. And I started out talking about personal finance because I thought people cared about personal finance. I was in like a ton of debt at the time because, again, you get out of college, you start making a salary. You think it's a lot, but it's not a lot at all. Um, get married. You have all this stuff. My wife was in school at the time. So I was in a ton of debt, and I was like, I'm going to start a podcast talking about that, talking about paying it off. I'm just going to be super transparent. Uh, well, I, I was talked about that for like four episodes and then I just started interviewing people on entrepreneurship and I was like, I don't like talking about money anymore. It's kind of boring. Um, did end up paying like all the debt off, which was cool, but I didn't really document it. I really just focused on, Hey, I'm going to interview high level people and I'm going to talk about business and just kind of see what I can do. So then it grew and I think it grew through consistency. Um, I was working a job, so there'd be days where I would literally have to go to another room at my job and do interviews. And I'd be like in my, you know, I'd be wearing like a polo or a button-down shirt, and you know, I have to bring like my microphone there and my laptop and all that stuff to be able to do it. And I didn't really think about it. Like looking back, I was like, man, I was actually pretty dedicated to making that work. Um, but the more that I did it and the more content I posted, whether I got a lot of engagement or not on social media. It was just consistent. That was it. I was just consistent. And then, you know, once you are able to be consistent, you have bigger names and you can start name dropping. Now, what really set it, it, what I really think was a catalyst for, for the growth is I went to Las Vegas a few months after I started the podcast. I was, I was going to this guy's event named Travis Chapel. He runs a podcast called build your network interviewed like every successful person you can think about. He's a really cool guy, very, very intelligent guy, and he knows what he's doing. He had Bradley there. Mark Brazil was there. Dan Fleischman. If you don't know those people, Bradley is huge when it comes to sales. Uh, he's definitely a character. He's kind of hard to uh, get to like, but once you get to like him, he, he knows his stuff. Mark Brazil, I would say he's kind of a pioneer in the canvas art space. You know, Everyone has a canvas art company nowadays. He was one of the first with Iconic, partnered with Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, Damon John, etc., and then Dan Fleischman, the youngest person to ever take a company public. Um, and you, you see those people in a room, and you see their hustle and what they've done and how far they've come. You're like, man, I got, I can do this. It just it obviously just takes consistency. You just got to do it. Just show up, because there's so many people out there that want the same thing, but they're not going to do the same thing to get there, because they don't want it enough. So I got there and it really inspired me. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to keep pushing the podcast. And I remember January of the next year, um, we did a podcast episode every single day, or at least one every single day. And it was hard as shit, but I learned a lot about just like prioritizing time, task management, et cetera. But that is when we hit number 33 for entrepreneurship in America. And I don't think it was anything other than just being consistent. That's all it was is being consistent. Then... Got to interview Mark, uh, not Mark Brazil, but Mark Randolph. He was the first CEO of Netflix. Had Bradley on after that. And it was just, it just kept growing and growing and growing. I did fall out of love with it because it, I think that January kind of burned me out. I was like, man, this is a lot. Now I just want to take a break. And then once you take a break from something, it's like taking a gap year in college. Once you take a gap year, you never go back because you're like, okay, I, I'm not doing that. It sucked. I'm not going back for that. Um, but when I was running the podcast, I wasn't making money. I was spending a lot of time on something and making $0 in return. 
And when you're married, it doesn't always fly. You know, it's like, hey, you're spending a lot of time. You could be spending that with me. You're not making any money. Like, what's the purpose of this? So then I got fired. And it was kind of an embarrassing moment, right? Because, you know, I was 23 at the time. And I'm like, man, I just got fired. Uh, like, what is, like, how does that happen? And, you know, I'm supposed to be providing for my family. And um, it just sucked. It, it was just, it, but it was what it was. I couldn't do anything about it. Uh Started a fractional CFO business, like I mentioned. That was strictly just because I thought I knew how to run a business just because you read books, just because you go through courses, just because you interview people. And don't get me wrong, interviewing people is great. Doing a podcast is great. Reading books is great. But if you don't apply any of that, it doesn't matter. And in my opinion, with running a business or running a podcast or doing anything, you just you suck at first. You get better the more you do it. And that's what people don't understand. They see these people that are young, like yourselves, People probably see this podcast and say, oh, man, they run the podcast really well, very successful. I'm going to do my own and be just as great. They get behind the mic and their first episode is dog shit. It's like, hey, I'm sure Kyle and Lewis's first episode sucked too, you know, it, it, because you get better. You get more comfortable. So, you know, as I got more comfortable with doing the podcast, I gained more confidence talking to people and I gained more confidence in myself. And I started a business and I, it sucked. I didn't know what I was doing, but I learned a lot. I learned about managing people. And that's where Vasa came into play of just, you know, hey, I'm young. I'm 25. I don't know everything in the world. I'm not going to act like I do. But something I do know about is outsourcing, doing it in an efficient way, and training the resources to actually push you forward. And the, the reason that this is important, when I worked at UBS, and it, it clicked a little bit ago for me. When I worked at UBS, I probably spent the first like three months trying to figure out what my job was, what my role was. Because I didn't know. You know, they, they tell you what you're responsible for in passing, but it's like, okay, you tell me to do this report, but I have no clue how to do that. No one's teaching me. SOPs don't exist with organizations like that. You would think, you know, a, a $100 billion company like UBS, like they're going to have systems in place to make it successful. No, it doesn't exist. Because when you go to companies like that, nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about pushing the initiative forward. So then when we start now and we start working with companies and all their SOPs are in their head and they can't even fathom training somebody, it's like because you haven't even taken the time to try creating SOPs, recording videos of yourself doing a particular task and training, you need to be amazed at what people are capable of. So that's why when people talk about virtual assistants being virtual assistants and nothing more, it's like, well, because you have seen it from the perspective of people who don't take full advantage of their capabilities. You've seen it where people just tell them what to do in passing and they get pissed that it wasn't done right because you have to take an initiative to be a leader and make them feel like they're a part of the team. But that's really been my journey is, you know, I'm still young. I'm, I'm still learning. I still fail. I still make mistakes. But at the end of the day, like I view it as where am I going to be in five, 10 years? Grind um, now, be successful, do what you can and just keep pushing forward. Well, I think you're going to go up and to the right for sure. Uh, do you think that, that having a kid really impacted your drive and, and uh, I guess, ambition and focus on building this business into something that's viable? We, we, we interviewed Akira the Don, um, and he had this really interesting take. It was like, politicians must have children. And if they don't, they, they just like shouldn't be politicians because like, you know, when you have kids, you're making, I don't, I don't have kids, so I don't know. But when you have kids, at least I would think that you're, you know, making decisions for them, for their future. So it's got to change like everything about the way that you look at the world. Did that happen for you with uh, Vasa and, and, you know, the rest of it? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a son, his name is Boston. He's one years old, one year old. And, um, it does change your perspective because the the way the, the duty I have as a dad my, or my responsibilities as a man now are, are a lot tougher. Um, and you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you, when you're single and don't have kids, you can get away with working 18 hours a day. And that's fine because no one, you don't, no one needs you. You need you. Nobody else needs you. When you're a dad and a husband, your family needs you. I can't just grind in my office here for 18 hours a day and expect my relationship to be okay. You know, that's, that's stupid. That's naive. So it's forced me to get really good at time management. Um, and that's something that like I would even implore you guys to do is get really good at time management before you have to get good at time management because that's something that you learn along the way. And 
you know, for me, I, I live and die by my schedule. So it's 3.43 right now. I have a meeting after this. I'm done at six so that I can, hey, I'm gonna go hang out with my family. I'm gonna cook dinner. We're gonna eat. I'm gonna, I'm a, I'm a human. I'm gonna clean the kitchen. I'm gonna do laundry. You know, I'm gonna give my son a bath, you know, lay him down and, you know, hang out with my wife, watch Netflix. You know, it's, it, it pisses me off all these people that act like all they do is fucking grind 24 seven. It's like, that's not true. You know, that's not true. And if you do do that, you probably hate it. And you're doing it just to show something on social media. But it's my responsibilities as a man are, are much greater now to where the, my son is, is starting to get a lot more aware of, of work and himself and growing up and playing, like all this stuff. He's, he's becoming more aware of it because he's growing. And I want him to grow up seeing me working, but also giving time to them, but showing, okay, that work of harmony can exist because I've seen somebody do it in person. But not only that, but I, he's watching me chase something, chase a goal, chase a dream, and hopefully achieving it. And he can see that it's possible for him to do that too. Because um, at the end of the day, they will have more kids, but I want them to be what they want to be. You know, if you want to run a business, run a business. If you want to work at EBS at a desk for the rest of your life, do that. It's But do it to the best of your ability. That's something that I want him to know is whatever you do, do it with everything you got. If you can't do it with everything you got, then do something else. So, yeah, it's definitely taught me a lot. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a journey. I'll tell you that it's a lot. It's not easy, <laughs> but it's a uh, it's good. It's good for me. Yeah, I like that line. If you can't do it with everything you got, do something else. I think that's like you're kind of living that out right now. Uh, on the on the subject of time management, because that is you know crucially important for anyone either to do proactively or before. They don't have the luxury of doing it proactively. They are already married. They are already busy with children, other obligations. What are the things they should be looking to? What's like the low hanging fruit, whether they use, you know, your services or decide to get on the struggle bus and do it themselves, uh, to outsource it themselves to free up their time and be more efficient and actually be able to like effectively have a day with those boundaries and the same amount of output is created. Like what it should be people getting off their plate first and how are you helping companies do that with, uh, what you're speaking about before we started, right? With your, I'm getting I'm struggling for the word here. The the operating operating systems that you're helping people to build. Virtual ones. Yeah. So so that, I was about to bring that up. So when you are working with a virtual assistants um, for the first time, you have this tendency to want to delegate literally everything. You want to throw everything on their plate, whether you train them or not. You throw everything on their plate because you just want it off your plate. And that's the wrong way to do it. I can tell you that right now. It's way better to go slower than to um, try to do everything at once. So something that um, we are really keen on is we have this training. It's a free trainer on our website, and it's just called Delegation 101. It takes like 10 minutes to go through it. It's just a spreadsheet, and it's three columns. And the purpose is for you to brain dump on the spreadsheet everything you are responsible for, things you don't like doing, things you shouldn't be doing, and things you're not good at. Actually, sorry, things you don't like doing, things you don't know how to do, and things you're not good at. Uh, and what you're you're gonna find is you know you're gonna have some overlap, but you're probably doing a lot in every single category. Now, the first bucket that you want to alleviate yourself from is the things you don't like doing, because that's going to provide the biggest ROI to you in the quickest time frame possible. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a hard task, but the way that I see it, and the way that I, I tell people to kind of put it on their own terms, let's say that you delegate a task that takes you five minutes a day, but you absolutely hate doing it. Five minutes a day is several hours every single year that you are now going to get back because you're delegating something off your plate. Now you have that five minutes freed up every morning, and that five minutes freed up every morning could completely change your entire day. Uh, so I, I implore people to, to go through that training. Virtual Wives is something to where we will actually go through this with them, and we create a workflow of each piece of their business, business development, sales, client onboarding, client success. Everyone has a different workflow in terms of what departments are in their business. Um, and it's determining first, what can we automate, automate everything you can first, but you don't want to over automate because what happens when you over automate is if something breaks, you don't know where it is. You're Thanks break. <laughs> you you uh, yeah. hit your zap, your task limit without realizing it. And then exactly. you have to do stuff manually. And then you email customer support to get more tasks, but then you already manually did it. And now you have a huge disaster. Exactly. And when you, and when you over automate too, <laughs> trying to find where a particular automation is coming from. And you're like, I have no idea. There's 50 automations here. It's going to take me forever. Just look through these, but you want to automate the, the easy stuff first. And then you have the things you're like, okay, we need some human interaction here. 
then you create the SOPs around particular tasks. But now that you know everything that is responsible by someone else, not you, now you can hire very meticulously for each individual position. So when we come in and build these custom operating systems, we're building it, yes, we're still hiring VAs and we're still creating the SOPs around them, but we're creating the automations around them as well to make this really robust operating system to where you know exactly what you're responsible for, Colin knows exactly what he's responsible for, and your VAs know exactly what they're responsible for. So it's super important to have that level of clarity uh, and it helps people really free up their time. And like the thing with an entrepreneur and, and the thing that I don't like about Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, is like I don't want to work just four hours a week. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I, I enjoy the grind. I, I enjoy working. I enjoy, you know, talking to clients and growing, et cetera. And, you know, maybe down the road when we have more kids, like, yeah, yeah, let's work four hours a week and travel the world and do what we want. But I, I enjoy the grind now. I have goals that are going to require that to hit it. But having a VA allows me to multiply my time to be able to get more done in a quicker time frame. Um, but as far as time management is concerned as well, I would implore people like live and die by your calendar, uh, sleep. I tell you right now, like grind all you want, sleep three hours a night, but it will catch up very, very quickly. And once you have one bad day where you have major brain fog, you can't think because of lack of sleep, it's just going to compound from there. So like take care of yourself. I my in my calendar, I literally have sleep 10 30 PM to 5 AM sleep. And I don't always hit that because, again, I'm a human and I mess up, but I have it to say, like, I, I need this amount of sleep every single night to be able to perform at the level I need to perform. And it sounds, like, ridiculous, and some people aren't that detailed, but it definitely helps so you know you're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing to push those goals and initiatives forward. Yeah, I put eating on my calendar because I would just forget to eat throughout the day. Yeah, I do too. I, I, I have, I, I've I got uh, alarms on my phone that go off. And I even turned my yeah. phone on this. This sounds crazy as well. I turned my phone on focus mode at 8am every single day to 6pm. And it's automatic to where there's a few people that can get through to my phone during that 10 hour period. Other than that, I'll look at it later. So that's a big problem as well as notifications. Like I can't tell you the level of clarity I got back when I just turned off my freaking email notifications, just turn those off and view your email a few times a day. Because you are going to get more emails than anything, in my opinion, because you have a ton of people that somehow get your email and spam you. Turn those off and you will. it's amazing how much more clarity you have. Well, I think we're coming towards the end here out of respect for everyone's calendars. Uh, Kyle, do you have any rapid fire questions before we sign off? Why should I hodl a crypto croc? Why should you hodl a crypto croc? What a, what a left field question as we end talking about VAs. Uh, so Crypto Croc Club's NFT project we launched back in December, and there, there's several different components of the Postman utility. Uh, one that we're going to be implementing soon is staking. So I'm actually in the process. I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a techie person, not really, but I can follow directions pretty well. So I'm in the process of creating our swamp token, um, where we'll be able to trade it for actual cryptocurrency over time. We have to get a liquidity pool behind it for it to actually have value. But once we start airdropping that, people can start staking it and earning different different levels of currency every single day for owning a crypto croc or multiple crypto crocs not only that but it gives you access to uh, our play to earn game to where you can earn additional rewards gives you access to different little mini games that will play in the discord etc but at the end of the day i'm not gonna lie running an empty project is hard it's hard mm -hmm. it's a lot of work you get a lot of shit people ask you know why you're not at this level and it's because there's five gajillion NFT projects out there and you have to somehow get the attention of the, the people that actually want to buy into it and hold it. But no, staking, being able to make a return on your investment, those are all the big things. Uh, we actually also give royalties back to crowd holders. So we have 5% of secondary market sales going back to us. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it does add up over time. And 40% of that 5%, we're on the Solana blockchain. We give that back to crowd holders on a weekly basis. So super cool stuff, uh, but it is it is a lot. It's hard. <laughs> Not gonna lie. Cool. Yeah. Uh, one question for me: If you suddenly were not able to hire virtual assistants from the Philippines tomorrow, what other countries would you be looking at to supplement I'd the gap? Immediately pivot to Latin America. Immediately. That's something we've actually discussed: is pivot, not pivoting, but like adding that as a as an diversifying. Yeah. Um, we're, we're stuck in the Philippines right now because we're, we're in the process on becoming incorporated there. Biggest thing, and we don't have enough time to really dive super deep into this, but the biggest thing that 
stacking and recruiting companies struggle with is turnover. There's a few different components to turnover. One, money uh, and benefits. So we allow them to dictate their own hourly rate. So we're kind of getting that out of the way early. Hey, you're getting paid what you need to get paid. Uh, but offering benefits. Can't offer benefits until you're incorporated in a country, just legally. So that's something we're doing right now to be able to offer benefits. The beautiful thing about offering benefits, and this is something that other people can use. We did a study, a very extensive study, offering benefits to a... Um, a Filipino employee is anywhere from $1.75 to I think $3.02 per hour. Whereas when you look at US-based employees, it's almost, I think it's like either 30 or 40% on top of their salary. Wow. So if someone's making 100 grand a year, you're spending 30 to 40 grand a year just on benefits for that person. It's called fringe. Um, but yes, Louis, if we couldn't hire from the Philippines anymore, we would go directly to Latin America. Because I know a lot of talent exists there as well. It's just extracting it and, and being able to provide it to clients. Well, Brady, if a business owner is out there listening to this podcast and, and wants to start hiring some VAs, where should we send them to to uh, link up with you and, and begin the process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can go to our website, V as in Victor, A as in Apple, staffing.agency. It's all the information you need on there. Hit me up on Instagram at Brady Morgan underscore. I'm pretty responsive. Um, other than that, those are the best places to reach out and get in touch. And that wraps up this conversation with Brady Morgan. Three takeaways from me, and then we'll sign off. I think the first one is Brady just seems very efficient with his time and seems to get a lot done and be making a lot happen with relatively low levels of stress. These aren't things you haven't heard before. You know, he's big on automating, big on outsourcing, and big on having really clear, really specific processes in place. He's also big on retention. Uh, which is another way to prevent wasting time to have to train new people on those things outlined above. Uh, so that's the first takeaway. The second one is how he humanizes every relationship. Uh, I really like the impact he discusses of just a short daily schmooze with everyone on his team, no matter what their role is, just five minutes. Hey, how's your day going? What's up with you? Uh, makes people feel a whole lot more connected and valued than if you never got to those things. And again, whether you want to sound super calculating about it or not, it's just the right thing to do. And it does save you a ton of time in the long run because these people are going to like you and you're going to like them and actually get to know them. And there's a lot of benefits to just those basic things. Uh, I also have the word benefits written down here because his goal is to be able to get these people to a point where they have benefits and showing people there's a long-term reason to want to work with him and have more advantages than just getting a salary uh, is also part of the way he makes those relationships work a lot better. Third takeaway, you know, we've probably mentioned this on a lot of podcasts, uh, not recently though. We've we're called the Lewis and Kyle show. You probably know that from listening to this and seeing it in your play right now. But at one point we just, at one point we thought about changing the name to the bias towards action podcast, which silly name or not, that's one of the essential themes that we want to have instilled in us from, you know, the impact of having these conversations and having people's effects affect us uh, and their energy kind of impact our energy and osmosis as people call it. Uh, but Brady just really, demonstrates that just do it energy. He just goes after it and kind of trusts that he'll figure it out and make things happen. So those are three takeaways from this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you want to stay connected to us, the easiest way to do that is to subscribe in this feed to make sure you know about the next episode. You can also go on our website, find our email address there, fill out the contact form, find us on any social media, usually use Google. That's the easiest way to find the ones that are still active. And otherwise, Quick shout out to our sponsor, Espresso Displays. They're in the description. Portable second monitors. I highly encourage you to check them out. That's it for me though. See you next time. Bye-bye.